Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 48. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 472. I want to open this morning by reading to you a very quick story about Jesus and the disciples. Interestingly, this short story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm going to read you Mark's account this morning. This is from Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now what follows after that brief narrative is Jesus speaking about the end times, about his return and the judgment that he will bring. But important for our study this morning is that Jesus looked at this physical building and then used that, used this picture of this wonderful temple this wonderfully ornate, huge temple, and said none of the stones are going to be left as a picture of the total judgment and destruction that he would bring. Now, this is a common way that God helps us to understand his truth in the life of ancient Israel in the Old Testament using physical items or actions that point to spiritual truth. To use the language of the writer of Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 10, the sacrifices, the temple, and even the Sabbath point forward to greater truths as a shadow of the good things to come. So God uses what we can see and feel and touch and do, these concrete pictures, to point us to greater spiritual truths. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing today, but he's going to use the city of Jerusalem. He's going to talk about the physical city. We're going to have talk of citadels and walls and the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. And he's going to use this city to preach to us God's truths. And in seeing the proclamation of the city, we will also be called to be ones who proclaim the truths of God. So let's look at the first couple verses, Psalm 48, where we're going to see the city proclaims the power of God. Let's first look at verses 1 to 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. This psalm begins with a declaration of worship. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This psalm is meant to call us into worship of our God. And what follows in these first verses is a description of where the city of God 
is. Jerusalem is on Mount Zion, his holy mountain. It is described as beautiful in elevation and is the joy of all the earth. Now, thankfully for us, we live in a region of the world where we regularly see mountains. And I think the psalmist is calling us to have the same appreciation that we have for the majestic mountains that we do for the Lord. I remember the first time we went out into the Mount Baker area and we were so much closer to those mountains and you get a truer sense of their size and magnitude. And the awe that you feel, the psalmist is saying that is what you are to feel in your worship to God. The other layer here is that in a way it was common in the ancient world to have deities pictured as living on mountains. In a sense, it was where earth and heaven met. Think of the Greek gods on Mount Olympus, but there are other examples throughout the ancient world. So that's one of the reasons we can picture this as the place where God lives, his city. And you picture the mountains and their grandeur and the bigness of God. But as one commentator points out, it's interesting in verse 2 that it is the joy of all the earth. Because as he says, it is surrounded by higher mountains offering a better panoramic view. So in one sense, Mount Zion wasn't even the best mountain in that area. And so we must understand it is not just the physical beauty of Mount Zion, but it is because that is where God has decided to represent his physical presence among his people. It is the joy of the earth because it is the place where God has said, this is my sign that I am with my people. And that's where we get into verse 3, where the city itself speaks truth about God. Look at verse 3. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. The psalmist is telling the reader who could walk around Jerusalem, when you look at the city and you look at its defenses, when you look at the walls and the towers. Again, we don't often think of cities as providing safety and defense as they did back then. Okay, there's not a wall around Seattle that all the areas go into when there's a marauding army. But that's how the ancient world worked. If you were out in a farm and the enemy came, you ran into the walls of the city and were defended by the city. And the defense of the city, the fortress nature of the city tells us, shows us, that God himself is our fortress. The psalmist is saying when you look at the walls and you look at the towers, it is a physical reminder that God is your king and your fortress. And the result, the response we are to have is one of worship and joy. Again, the city is the joy of all the earth. The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. 
Again, we've seen this familiar mix of imagery and response in in the Psalms here. That when God is our king and our fortress, we can live lives of joy and worship. When you know that God is king and is king over all the earth, and that he is your fortress in all times, that has the power to change your life. You don't have to live a life of fear. You don't have to live a life of anger or bitterness. But every day, you can live a life of joy. You can boldly and confidently respond in worship to your king when he is your fortress. And this idea continues on in verses 4 to 7 where we see the city under attack. Let's look at those verses. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. After introducing God as a fortress, the psalmist then turns to the enemies of God, pictured as an army coming to attack the city. The kings are gathering to attack the city of God. And as soon as they come upon the city, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. The enemy cannot even mount an attack. There's not even any mention of they laid siege to the city. No, they, even as they're walking up to the city, they run away in terror. They tremble in fear before the city of God. Their anguish is compared to the anguish as of a woman in labor. This type of panic reminds me of a story from Israel's history. And this is not the only one, but this is one good example of this happened under King Saul. Let me read from 1 Samuel 14. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. So the Lord saved Israel that day. There are these stories in the Old Testament, and this is one of them in 1 Samuel 14, where God honestly wins the war by causing the enemy to kill themselves and fight against themselves. It's this panic, this terror, this trembling. But it makes it clear that God is the one saving Israel. And I think that's one of the points of verse 7 here in the psalm. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Again, before in verses 4 to 6, you might think, oh, it was the grandeur of Jerusalem that scared them. But verse 7 makes explicit here that it is the power of God. It is not the greatness of the city. It is the God who can by a command over the wind, shatter the ships of Tarshish. 
about this, one commentator writes, it is likened to the destruction of the ships of Tarshish, which were the pride and glory of seafaring nations such as Phoenicia. How strong and majestic they were, but how easily a strong wind could toss them about on the open sea and destroy the vessels, people, and cargo. God speaks and he shatters the navies of his enemies. This physical picture of attacking armies shows us that no enemy can stand before the Lord and his power. Again, one of the main themes of this psalm is that God is the great and powerful king. He is a fortress to his people, but he also fights for his people. He is the king above all kings and the power above every power, and nothing can stand before him. This leads to verse 8 where the people testify to what they've heard and seen. Look at verse 8 with me. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. This theme is going to come back later in the psalm, but I want you to see it here of the people's response of testimony. As we have heard, so have we seen. One of the functions we have as God's people is to testify to what we see God do. And throughout the history of God's people, his people have been witnesses to his goodness and justice. And in one sense, our faith is very historical. Think of all the history in the Bible. That is testimony to who God is and what he does. We also have church history that after the writing of the Bible where we can join with the psalmist in testifying to God's goodness and protection of his people over the centuries. And the historical protection is highlighted by the description of the city in this verse. Again, the city also testifies to these truths. So here it is described as the city of the Lord of hosts. Think back to Psalm 46. We talked about this. Okay, it wasn't a typo, Lord Sabaoth. Okay, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. It is also the city of our God. Through faith in Jesus, we can be in right relationship with this God. He is not some all-powerful God who is completely alien from his people. But through faith in Jesus, he can be our God, our fortress, our defender. And as this God, as this all-powerful God who loves his people, he will establish his city forever. Now when you see that there, established forever, it's a hint. 
that we're sort of not talking about the city of Jerusalem anymore. Because in AD 70, for example, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. There are these hints in the Old Testament where it talks about the line of David going on forever and ever. Well, that's impossible because everybody dies. Here, that God will establish the city forever and ever. It's helping us to see that we're not just talking about a physical city. To use the language of Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In Revelation, one of the pictures of eternal life is the new Jerusalem. That the physical city of Jerusalem is merely a picture, a shadow of the greater Jerusalem that is to come. The Jerusalem that will never be destroyed. Whose designer and builder is the Lord himself. When God is our God, we look forward to being in the eternal city which is never defeated or destroyed. The psalmist then makes a turn and, and, and again from moving to talking about God's power and his rule as king, we see more attributes of God highlighted beginning in verse 9. So let's look now, verses 9 to 11, where we're going to see uh, the psalmist talking about God's love and his righteousness. Beginning of verse 9. We have fought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your, praises re- so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Now, one of the most important features of Jerusalem that proclaims the presence of the Lord was the temple. The temple was a special physical representation of God's presence among his people. And as the author is in the city and as the author is in the midst of your temple, he cannot help but think about the Lord. And he first thinks of God's steadfast love When he looks at the temple, when he looks at this physical representation of God's presence among his people, his thoughts are drawn to the great love that God has for us. Our God is not just a God who is powerful. There are other gods in this world that are merely powerful. Our God is a God who loves us. And this is again going to connect to the response of worship and joy But before we get there, let's look at another aspect of God's character that rushes into the mind of the psalmist as he looks around the temple, and that is God's righteousness. He says, your right hand is filled with righteousness. When God acts, everything he does is righteous. Everything he does is good and just. And because of that, as we see in verse 11, we can rejoice. 
And we can even rejoice in the judgments of God because He is righteous, and so they are always good and right. I think it's important to see God's love and His righteousness here slammed together. Because I think there's a lie out there that it must be one or the other. Either God is loving or He is righteous. But the beauty of our God, the, the uniqueness of the God of the Bible is that He is at the exact same time perfectly loving and perfectly righteous. He always does what is right and good and He always does what is loving. No other God is perfect like that. No other system is perfect like that. Because you don't want to live in a world without a loving God, and you don't want to live in a world without a righteous God. Our God, your God, loves you more than you will ever know. Our God, your God, always does what is right and good and just. And like God's reputation, we see in verse 10, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth, so too shall God's praises. You see, it was always, from the beginning of the Bible, always in God's plan for his people to be made up of people from every place and time in history. While this specific Israelite city witnesses to who God is, it was always the plan of God for his people to be spread over the entire earth. While Jerusalem testifies to God's greatness, his worshipers cover the planet. And this again is where we see these notes of joy come up again and again. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. You can have joy today and every day because God loves you. You can have joy today and every day because God is righteous and everything he does is right and just. The psalmist then ends this psalm by calling his original readers and us to take a tour of the city. So let's look at verses 12 to 14. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God, forever and ever, he will guide us forever. The psalmist directs an architectural tour of the city. And again, for the original audience, they would have known how, first of all, how long it would have taken to walk around the whole city. But not only just walk around the city, but notice all the parts of the city. Look at the specificity he gives here. Number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, take a tour of the city and consider all of the intricacies of the walls and the defenses 
For what purpose, though? What follows in the end of verse 13 and into verse 14 is both a command to do, but also the content of that command. What are you to do with the knowledge of the city that you gain? Look at the end of verse 13. This nice purpose statement here, that you may tell the next generation. When the city of God speaks to you about the goodness and power of God, you are, in turn, to speak like the city. This is not just for your own good to see and understand, but you are to take what you are, have learned from the city and pass it on specifically to the next generation. There's always been a concern among God's people, not just for ourselves, but for others. And specifically in that is a concern for the next generation. Using Paul's words from Philippians, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And one special group of others that is in mind here in this text is the next generation of believers. No matter how old you are, I want you to be concerned about the faith of those younger than you. And along those lines, some of the best times of ministry I have experienced is with those that I am just a few steps further along in life. But I also want to challenge you to have a longer view of ministry. Pastor Mark Dever in his book, Deliberate Church, challenges pastors and elders to not simply think a couple years down the road, but rather, as he says, thinking in terms of 20, 30, 40, or even 50 years of ministry. What am I willing to do today that will serve others? And not just others, but maybe people I will never meet or haven't even been born yet. God is calling all of us to proclaim his truth to the next generation of disciples of Jesus. Again, there is always an outward-looking focus to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just, okay, I did it, I believed it, I'm good. And we see here explicitly one category of the others that we are to proclaim to is the next generation. We need to think past ourselves and think of those coming up, those who are younger, those, again, that we may never meet. What are we doing today for others in that way? But also the psalmist tells us what we are to proclaim, what is a part of this proclamation. Verse 14, that this is God, our God, forever and ever. The God of the Bible, the God who is proclaimed in the beauty of Mount Zion and the city of Jerusalem is our God forever and ever. He is the only true God. And he is the God who is in relationship with his people and he's not only with us forever, look at the end of verse 14, he will guide us forever. One of the central truths that the psalmist highlights here 
is that God is not just off in his cosmic corner watching us like a TV show. He is guiding us. The neat thing about that word guide there is that it can also be used in other parts of the Bible to talk about the work of a shepherd. One example of this is Psalm 80, which says this, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead or guide Joseph like a flock. At the same time that God is our almighty king, he is also our good shepherd who leads us and guides us. And he leads us and guides us not just a little bit or when he has time to get around to it, but he guides us and leads us forever. A couple thoughts as we close up. This morning, what do we learn from the preaching city of Jerusalem? Number one, our God is the Almighty King. Just as Jerusalem was the royal city where the king lived, here Jerusalem represents the presence of God, our King. In the walls and defenses of the city, it speaks to us that He is a fortress to His people. And he defeats any and all enemies. And he leads us and he guides us forever. Secondly, our God is the God of love and righteousness. The psalmist specifically names those two attributes of God. That you are loved by God more than you can fathom. And that everything God does is out of love for his people. And at the exact same time, God is perfectly righteous. Everything he does is right and just. And this includes punishment of the wicked and judgment of sin. But when we understand the righteousness of God, we can know with certainty that God will always act the same with perfect love and perfect righteousness. Thirdly, we are to live lives of worship and joy. We saw this come up a few times, sort of in the background there. That in talking about the city and talking about our call to worship and be joyful. When God is your God, when he is your king, when you know he is loving and righteous, you can have joy in any circumstance because of his great power and protection, because of his great love and justice, you can face any circumstance and trouble in this world with joy. And out of that joy, and often it is what helps us to be joyful, is the worship and praise that we are to give to God. It is both an expression of our joy, but also what can lead us into that joy. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Finally, number four, just like the city, we are to proclaim the greatness of God. Again, at the center of this psalm was that the city speaks to us. Truth about God. But we also saw that we are to testify to what we've seen and heard. And specifically, there was a call 
to proclaim these truths to the next generation. There is a special calling we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus to them. Even living today for believers we will never meet or know. All of us are missionaries to those younger than us, those of the next generation, those who need to hear that they can be saved from their sin by placing their personal trust in Jesus Christ. And so just as the psalmist presents Jerusalem's proclaiming the goodness of God, so too we must also play our part in making known the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this psalm that you use the physical city of Jerusalem to speak to us your truth. We thank you that you are the almighty king, that you are our fortress, and that you are the righteous God who loves us. God, that you would give us opportunity, that you would give us boldness to testify to these truths, that we would proclaim your goodness to the next generation, that we would join the city in proclaiming the goodness of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.